that we've had the uh, great fortune to uh, persuade uh, Sergei Sikorsky to come over from Arizona to speak to us. Thank you, sir. I want to uh, put everyone at ease that this will not be a terribly technical lecture. I feel very proud and very happy to be here and also to note with some very, very ple great pleasure the many similarities between the career of Sir Frederick Handick Page and that of my father. They both were born within four years of each other. Both of them started in aviation in the 1908-1910 time frame. And part of their success that I believe our technically minded people will be able to appreciate is the fact that without any handbooks, textbooks, or anything like that, by what my father sometimes called intuitive engineering. They arrived at some very, very logical, and at that time, some very, very interesting concepts. Without, without trying to get too technical, I would say this, that one of the keys of the success of Hanley Page and of Igor Sikorsky in the days of these terribly big and underpowered aircraft was their appreciation for the fundamental importance of the aspect ratio. The aspect ratio of 10 to 1, 11 to 1, and 12 to 1, which was in those days very difficult of achievement without incurring tremendous drag and weight penalties. And yet they went ahead and did it with these very, very wonderful results that, that aircraft flew on minimum horsepower and performed rather well at slight. It's interesting, and of course, almost every speaker has to start by saying that the dream of aviation, the dream of flying, has been with us literally since man climbed out of that cave and began to look at the birds flying around. My father studied many things. He said one of the interesting things is that uh, of all of the pri primitive people, quote-unquote primitive, possibly sophisticated, the Egyptians seem to have been the closest to approximating wingspan, wing area, and aspect ratio when they painted their gods on the walls. <laughs> My father, who was in Egypt on a number of occasions, says that's probably because of the fact that if you start taking a look at the birds soaring in the Valley of the Kings, the buzzards, and all of these other predators, you begin to see aspect ratios of 5 to 1, 7 to 1, and 8 to 1. It is also very interesting that mankind followed and tried to imitate the birds. And I use the words of uh, one very wonderful friend, the late and great Bill Bedford, when Bill said, to answer one of my questions, he said, one of the secrets that the birds have been trying to teach man, but the only people intelligent enough to understand it, are helicopter pilots and Harrier pilots, and that mysterious secret is that it is far more intelligent to stop and then land than it is to land and then try to stop. <laughs> Next slide. <clears throat> it's also very interesting to think of the fact that the first flying machine to actually take to the air was a helicopter. This is a toy that was developed and documented by the Chinese 800 B.C., this spin-top toy, the helicopter toy with a string that you pull and fly into the air, was then discovered on the streets 
of Peking, I believe, by Marco Polo. And he brought the first toys, the first spin-top toys back with him from China, where the toys spread. And by the year 1420, slide, the Christ child is depicted in this painting at the Cathedral of Le Mans. We all love Le Mans because of the 24-hour Grand Prix that's in there. In that very church is the first descriptive, first drawing of a helicopter. It is dated 1460, or roughly 20 to 25 years before the famous sketch of Leonardo da Vinci. The unknown artist had it better figured out than even Leonardo. Thanks, Light. 1783 marks the first time that man went into the air on a hot air balloon. And this changed the mentality. And of course, rightly so, France can be proud of the fact that the first documented flights of man from the earth were conducted in France on a machine invented by the Montgolfier brothers. My father also commented on and he said, you know, at that time, when the Montgolfier brothers were experimenting, there was no such thing as an FAA or a CAA, <laughs> which meant that aviation research could progress very quickly, very economically. <laughs> And very logically, because it is a fact that the, from the first inspiration of an open envelope flying up the flue, up the chimney, to the first liftoff of two human beings was seven and a half months. Now think of it, seven and a half months. We can't even design a light bulb today for seven and a half months. Next slide. By 1850, 1860, a number of very inspired people were beginning to speculate about air travel. And some of the designs, like the Hanson and the Stringfellows, were ap amazingly accurate predictions. The one problem, power plants. At that time, we know today that obviously there is no way to get a steam engine and coal-fired steam engine to develop the horsepower per weight ratio possible for flight. But still, it is a good idea. Next slide. In Igor Sikorsky's opinion, the Serious research starts in 1880, 1890, and one of the leading of scientists is, of course, Otto Lilienthal. My father, who loved aviation history, said that he had calculated that Otto Lilienthal had probably flown something like 2,200 glides, gradually improving his sailplanes and gradually improving his technique as a pilot. And uh, with one smoking slipstick or slide rule after another, eventually my father one day triumphantly told me that he had calculated that very probably Otto Lilienthal in 1894, 96, already had something like 2 hours 20 to 2 hours and 30 minutes of flying time. So incredibly far ahead of anyone else that it was literally no comparison. Next slide. It is about the same time that two things happen. Here in London, in a musty room of, the, of one of the great British museums, the Codex Atlanticus, the sketchbook of Leonardo da Vinci, is rediscovered. And in the Codex Atlanticus are the sketches of war chariots and wa water mills and all kinds of machines, and also this very famous sketch of the helicopter. The next event, slide is the publication of a book by a very wonderful Frenchman called Jules Verne. Now, Jules Verne is known to us for 20,000 leagues under the sea, a voyage to the moon, 80 days around the world, etc. He also wrote an oddly 
almost frighteningly accurate description of a helicopter. I would dare say a multi-rotor helicopter, but at any rate, uh, a machine that would have pleased Frank Piasecki and a number of other people. <clears throat> but in it, Jules Verne describes very accurately the ca capabilities of a vertical takeoff and landing machine, a machine capable of hovering, and a machine eventually capable of saving human lives in distress from floods and burning buildings, etc., etc. This illustration started my father's love affair with a helicopter. He was 11 or 12 when he read it in a Russian translation, and he said he would go to sleep every night with hiding underneath the covers of his bed, looking and daydreaming at this very drawing that he and I were able to discover in one of the Bougainist shops on the Seine many, many years later. Next slide. We all know of the fact that then two young bicycle repairmen in Dayton, Ohio, began to start working on the challenge. They did not think that they would solve the problem of flight, but they wanted to do their bit to add to the lore of technology. Many years later, my father, himself a pioneer, would be asked, how was it possible that the Wright brothers, with no government backing, with no financial uh, means other than what they themselves earned, how was it possible that they solved the problem of flight? And my father would look and very patiently explain to them that the secret of the Wright Brothers' success was the fact that of all of these thousands of people that had researched and attempted to fly, the first three men in history that realized that flight was actually two terribly difficult challenges, Otto Lilienthal and the two Wright Brothers. And because Igor said the challenge was not one, the challenge was two completely independent problems. Problem number one, design and build a machine capable of flight. The other problem, equally dangerous, teach yourself to fly and stay alive long enough to become a pilot. And consequently, like the Otto Lilienthal, the Wright brothers chose the proper path, the only path, started building gliders, slides, and as, as their gliders increased, they began to make longer flights. I'm not going to bore you with the full details. These details can be found in any number of books. Suffice it to say that the first and earliest gliders of the Wright brothers had very short wings, very small cords. They were not designed to go much more than above the air cushion, which the Wright brothers already realized was there. As their piloting technique and their aerodynamics improve, the gliders get bigger, the wingspan get, grows, the wing area grows, slide. And of course, we all know what happened on that day in September of 1903 when man first lifted into the air. The rumors of the Wright brothers, one or two fairly inaccurate articles began to circulate. France, the birthplace of the balloon, slide, began to study the challenge of flight, which was solved in Europe three years after the Wright brothers in 1906 with the f first flight of Alberto Santos Dumont in Bagatelle in France, just outside of Paris. And this was a flight that went up to 33 feet in the air and covered a distance of 722 feet. But it was a takeoff and a flight and a landing. Next slide. Some two years later, we have here <clears throat> Henry Farman, a Britisher living in France, 
a very, very talented gentleman, artist, bicycle racer, sportsman, uh, makes a headlines around the world by being the first man to fly between two flagpoles stuck one kilometer apart at a cavalry training ground, I believe, at Issy Les Molineaux. Next slide. The Wright brothers, hearing of the fact that uh, probably that the Europeans are now beginning to catch up to them, come to France and eventually at Le Mans, where on a racetrack at Hunadier, they start making their first flights. And it is a sensation, because here are two men that take off, fly, make circles, figure of eights, climb to altitudes of 200 and 300 feet, and stay airborne for 12 and 14 and 16 minutes at a time. Slide. It is generally recognized that suddenly in Europe that everything that the Wright brothers has said was true, and they were so far ahead of the rest of the aviation community that uh, quite literally there was no comparison. The crowned heads of Europe made pilgrimages. Here, Edward VII standing between the two Wright brothers while they explained to him the intricacies of aviation. Slide. Now, once the Wright brothers had proven that flight was possible, of course, everyone began to build airplanes. To the great good luck of many of the inventors, the machine simply did not get off the ground. <laughs> My father characterized this period of time as the following. In those pioneering days, the chief designer was almost inevitably the chief test pilot. This had the fortunate result of eliminating poor engineering very early in the game. <laughs> Next slide. My father traveled to Paris in 1908, and in the spring he studied everything that he could about aviation. There were no textbooks, but there were just a, num a very limited number of pilots who had flown successfully, and when they felt in a good mood, they would start to talk about their experiences and give advice to a group of 10 or 12 hungry, thirsty young men standing around them. My father watched these flights, and he says it was amazing, not only to see the flights, but to see the reaction of human beings as grown men and women wept with joy, and tears ran down their cheeks because a dream of 10,000, 25,000 years old was suddenly taking place in front of their eyes. Man was flying, and the emotional impact of that vision put tears into the eyes of grown men and women. Slide. He learned a great deal. My father learned a great deal from the flights and also a great deal from the landings. It was generally characteristic that as soon as the airplane stopped moving, with accompanied by loud crumpling noises, your chief engineer would run over and inspect the engine. And if the engine was undamaged, he would smile, get you out of the wreckage and say, no problem, we'll have it repaired and flying again in about two to three days. There is one note of caution that my father wanted to point out. For some strange reason, dogs became the mascots of the early pilots. And at the same time, the dogs were never in any serious danger because my father assured me that a healthy dog could always outrun a healthy airplane. <laughs> Next slide. It was then at that time that the pilots, the, those few, blessed few, that could fly and could design and build aircraft, became the rock stars, the absolute heroes of the press, and in fact, the heroes around the world. 
and an enterprising British newspaper decided, let's think of something that is so difficult of achievement, but that yet so glamorous that it will capture us many, many readers. And they called in their scientific advisory council and said, think of something in aviation so impossible that it'll take at least 25 years. Mind you, 25 years. The advisory council of this unnamed British newspaper came back in two days and said, well, very simple, flight across the English Channel. The aircraft are incapable of doing it and probably will be incapable of doing it for at least another 15 to 25 years. So the newspaper posted a prize for the first man to fly across the English Channel. Slide. It did not take five or ten years. It took exactly two weeks before the first gentleman was sitting on the beaches in France, Hubert Latham, again a British uh, gentleman living at that time in Paris, very, very famous sportsman and also very famous for the cigarette holders that he used to uh, uh, literally walk down the Champs-Élysées with. He was the first man to try to cross the English Channel, slide, and he got to about uh, three miles offshore when his engine quit on him. He was never really in any great danger because airplanes floated very well in those days, so he lit another cigarette and waited for a passing steamer to come to pick him up. After a spell of bad weather, Another very great gentleman, slide, tried. In this historic photograph, you see Louis Blériot, 30 seconds before takeoff, radiating confidence. <laughs> In fact, the only confident man is the standing right behind him, and that's Luigi Bianchi, his chief engineer and, and engine specialist. But to make a long story short, here is the man that conquered this incredible 25-year-old technological gap slide, because in about 35 minutes, he landed with a bump and a thump very close to Dover Castle, and with that, another aviation superstition suddenly became a fact. Man could fly from France to England or vice versa. Slide. It's in that vintage year of 19... 1910, that Igor Sikorsky builds his first helicopter, which does not fly, and then he builds his second helicopter, which is just barely capable of moving a few inches into the air, but without a passenger in it. And in uh, Igor's own evaluation, he decides at that time that possibly the helicopter will be more of a challenge than fixed-wing aircraft. And he dedicates the next six months to building a series of aircraft. Slide. The first aircraft he had could not take off, but he ran briskly along the ground and gave him valuable training on, on steering an aircraft on the ground. Second aircraft had a one six-second hop, and that was all it did. That was taken apart. His number three aircraft, again with an Anzani 25-horsepower engine, had a total life of two and one-half minutes in the air before it was smashed beyond repair. In three short, brilliant years, Igor Sikorsky taught himself how to design aircraft, taught himself how to build aircraft, and taught himself how to fly these aircraft. And by this time, in 1912, he had constructed an aircraft capable of flying for an hour, an hour and a half, reaching altitudes of 6,000 feet, and cruising speeds of about 55 or 60 miles an hour, carrying three total people on board. He was invited to become the chief engineer, the chief scientist, and the chief pilot of a large industrial concern in St. Petersburg. Slide. 
and suddenly became internationally famous for the world's first four-engined aircraft to fly successfully. In fact, the world's first four-engine to fly successfully at the advanced age of 24 years. When this aircraft first flew, it was by a factor of three, the largest, heaviest, and uh, most sophisticated aircraft in the world. The passengers, 12 of them, sat in a fully enclosed cabin, cooled in the summertime, heated with engine exhaust manifolds in the winter. In my father's words, to the pilots in this room, a very unique aircraft. It cruised at 65 miles an hour, it took off at 65 miles an hour, and it stalled at 65 miles an hour. <laughs> Next slide. It led to a considerably more efficient and considerably more brilliant aircraft, the start of the Ilya Murmitz series of aircraft. And this went into production in 1914 as uh, World War I started. By 1915, approximately 35 or 40 of these giants, slide, were operational over the Russian front. They were used not only on bombing raids, but on amazing photo recon uh, flights that sometimes lasted up to five and a half and six hours above uh, enemy fighter activity. By the time the fighters could spiral up to intercept the aircraft, the aircraft was already long gone. But the valuable photographs of German concentrations and uh, fortifications were at hand. A total of 75 of these aircraft were built just before something started, and that slide was the Bolshevik Revolution. And as Igor Sikorsky began to see his beloved country sliding deep into anarchy, slide, he began to worry. And his worries and his worst fears were founded when Lenin, in January of 1918, ordered the arrest, the imprisonment, and eventual trial and execution of anyone closely connected with the Tsar or with the former regime. And as these uh, murderous wave of arrests and quote-unquote liquidations started, Igor Sikorsky left Russia, traveled to France, offered his uh, services to the French, which immediately accepted, and he had the first of five prototypes nearly ready to fly when the armistice stopped all aviation activity and all procurement in France. He elected to go to the United States, where he hoped that there was a chance for a penniless refugee to resume. Slide. As he crossed the ocean, speculation in 1919 began to start about uh, this next great technical barrier, this great absolutely uh, impassable barrier, namely the Atlantic Ocean. And the first people to cross it were the American crew of the NC-4, however, with fuel stops, however, with extensive support from the United States Navy, and with takeoff in Newfoundland, landing in the Azores, and then eventually to Spain, and eventually to Plymouth. And that was in May. And in June of 1919, slide, the very first true transatlantic flight by the British team of Alcock and Brown in the Vickers Vimy, with that 1,900-plus-mile flight from Newfoundland to a uh, bog, a swamp in Ireland, suddenly one more aviation superstition, one more aviation impossibility suddenly became a fact. Slide. Igor Sikorsky's work started in 1923 on a chicken farm 
next to Roosevelt Field, Long Island, in the New York area. And uh, the factory was donated. The, the space between the chicken huts was donated by a white Russian refugee officer. And he said, Igor, take, these, take this place if you have nowhere else to go. And that is where the very first aircraft built by Sikorsky in America took shape, slide. As it was nearly finished, the company ran out of money. And in my father's words, a miracle happened. Totally unannounced, a very, very wonderful Russian refugee came up, took a look at the airplane, sat down, wrote out a check to my father and said, pay me back after you've made a success of yourself. I trust that you will. To all of you who are acquainted with classical music, I believe you will recognize the signature on that $5,000 check. It's the name of Sergei Rachmaninov, because it was Sergei Rachmaninov that gave Igor Sikorsky the $5,000 to start his career in America. Slide. The S-29A was, at the time that it was built, one of the largest aircraft in the United States, carried 12 passengers. The prevailing superstition at that time was the pilot had to sit in an open cockpit and uh, feel the wind and listen to the the whiz and the whine of the uh, of the flying wires, and consequently, the pilot sat in the open cockpit midway back from the wing. The, pal- uh, the passenger sat, again, enclosed, heated, and comfortable. The aircraft eventually ended up by keeping Sikorsky alive. He was barnstorming people, sightseeing tours, everything else like that. Then it was eventually ended up, slide, in the hands of Howard Hughes. And Howard Hughes rebuilt it as the first, uh, as a German Gotha bomber purposely crashed it in a great aviation epic called Hell's Angels. Still, aviation was a precarious profession at best. All of that slide changed the instant that Charles Lindbergh flew across the ocean because it electrified the United States. And in my father's words, he said, before Lindbergh's flight, aviation was a hobby. After Lindbergh's flight in the United States, aviation became a profession. Slide. The aircraft that Igor Sikorsky built at that time, the S-38, was an amazing success because it was the first aircraft multi-engine aircraft built in the United States, capable of maintaining altitude with one engine out. Every other aircraft of that period of time became a trimotor in order to pass the American, at that time, Civil Aeronautics Authority requirement that an aircraft carrying passengers had to maintain altitude with the loss of one engine. This aircraft could. Again, I will tell you some of the details, but again, aspect ratio became one of the keys to the possibility of this aircraft being able to maintain altitude. It was immediately evaluated by a gentleman named Charles Lindbergh, who had just been hired as a technical advisor to Pan American Airways, slide, and this aircraft proceeded to open up South America because it, being an amphibian, it could land where there were no airports. You could always find a sheltered lake, you could always find a sheltered bay or an inlet, and you landed it on the water, and then you taxied ashore, and here is one of Pan American's major stations at that time throughout the Caribbean and into South America. This photograph actually was taken by my father on one of his trips down there, and it's a very, very early dawn, and the uh, the petrol is already being put into the airplanes, and the passengers are being awakened at a small little hotel nearby, 
and the next leg of the flight is about to start. Slide. The success of the S-38 asked and received a reply from Pan American who said, build us a large 400 aircraft capable of carrying 38 to 40 passengers in railway club car comfort, which was done. The aircraft went on a triumphant inaugural tour. It was the largest aircraft at that time built in the United States, carried 40 passengers in luxurious comfort. It was flown on this inaugural flight throughout the United States and down through the Caribbean by Charles Lindbergh. Slide who would be forced every morning to have a speech, then fly two hours, land at some other town, have another speech promoting the advantages of air travel, spend another evening getting cleaned up, and then give another after-dinner speech promoting aviation. Because Pan American and Juan Tripp knew exactly what they had. They had one of the most charismatic and famous pilots in the world talking, not necessarily about Pan Am, but talking about aviation. At any rate, slide. As they returned back from the flight, Igor Sikorsky and Charles Lindbergh began to take telegram blanks, menus, and sketch out the next generation of aircraft. Both Lindbergh and my father believed that it was technically possible to design an aircraft that would carry a meaningful load of passengers or mail over a distance enough to be able to uh, fly across the Pacific and also across the Atlantic. An aircraft whose performance at that time was considered impossible by most of the leading aviation authorities. This sketch is, by the way, on the back of a Cuban telegram form. The handwriting is that of Charles Lindbergh. And the sketch shows the distances that Charles Lindbergh is telling my father have to be made between New York Newfoundland, and then eventually to uh, Ireland, and eventually to London. And it's one of the treasures that we have in the Sikorsky archives. There are about 10 or 12 of these sketches. One evening, there is this very, very wonderful legend that they are sitting there making the sketches in one of the Pan American Airway pilots who knows this absolutely horrible den, but a restaurant on in the harbor of Havana, Cuba. Absolutely a place that you would never want to go to normally, but the pilot said, it's fantastic, fantastic food. So they sit there, and they make sketches, and after their finished dinner, uh, one of the waiters comes up and asks them, gentlemen, uh, what would you care as an after-dinner drink? Oh, we don't. Oh, no, somebody has already ordered you after-dinner drinks. And so the legend says that uh, they all ordered uh, something this or that. Lindbergh was a teetotaler. My father ordered a glass of sherry. Lindbergh, a glass of, uh, I think, a tea. When they stood up, they said, can we thank the man? Oh, no, he's left. Do you know his name? Ah, si, si, he's, uh, uh, he's um, Americano. It's Ernesto Hemingway, Hamungway, Hemingway. It was Ernest Hemingway, hidden in that same horrible, raunchy restaurant, who had recognized these people and uh, asked that they not be disturbed, but gave them a uh, after-dinner drink. Slide. When that aircraft that was sketched on the return flight first began to fly, it was the S-42, which shattered all of the world's records for range, payload, and speed, and put America, uh, put the United States at the top of the world record lists 
with something like 14 or 18. Next came France with 12. Slide. The aircraft, as you saw in the preceding photograph, had a magnificent wing aspect ratio of 11 to 1. Again, we go back out literally to the, that very beginning. It cruised 150 to 170 miles an hour. It carried uh, a load of 500 pounds of mail and up to 12 passengers. It carried 32 passengers for shorter ranges, but it could carry 12 passengers 2,600 miles, which is enough just to make it from San Francisco to Hawaii, which is the longest unbroken stretch that you need to fly to be able to circumnavigate the globe. Next slide. The aircraft started a series of exp expeditions and exploratory flights that took it from Hawaii. Eventually, Pan American had an airline system that carried the aircraft from San Francisco, Hawaii, Guam, Midwake, ended in Manila, and from Manila, one branch airline went to Hong Kong, and one branch went to Wellington, New Zealand. With the conquest of the Pacific, the same aircraft turned around and made the first crossing of the North Atlantic in July 70 years ago. This year a very very interesting family will try to do, replicate that survey flight from Botwood, Newfoundland to Foynes, Ireland. There are no Sikorskis and no short flying boats left today but they're going to try to do it in a PBY-5A Catalina aircraft. Next slide. During all of this time, as I was growing up, I began to see my father sketching, returning back to his first love of the helicopter. This sketch, by the way, patent application, is dated uh, June of 1931. It's one of the earliest sketches, but to me, very significant, because you see here Igor Sikorsky, zeroing in, as one would say in the United States jargon, zeroing in on the single rotor helicopter, a configura configuration considered to be absolutely impractical and impossible by most aviation authorities. Slide. As the last of the great Sikorsky flying boats leaves the hangar and starts services, slide, Igor Sikorsky lifts off the ground with his famous fedora, crash helmet, and starts hovering in the air, six or eight inches into the air. Uh, I would love to use his words when he said it was a unique chance to relive one's life all over again, to design a flying machine without knowing how to design it, build it without knowing the load paths, without knowing, in other words, where to make it strong or where you can save weight. And then afterwards, after you've built this machine, then you climb aboard start the engine, and you've never flown a helicopter before in your life. So you're teaching yourself how to fly that helicopter at the same time that you're testing the machine. Uh, to the, I would say, to the design engineers in this particular room, I would say that uh, comfortably the design envelope was expanded, but with a certain amount of prudence. Set. Slide. But about one and a half years later, the machine had progressed to the point that A, it had grown several extra tail rotors, B, it was capable of flight, and it eventually became the first prototype of the first successful single rotor aircraft slide. 
The machine began to garner a considerable amount of publicity and uh, at the same time the confidence of the United States military services slide that ordered a uh, bigger version of it, two passengers, to be called the XR4, then YR4, and a number of these were then built. The first order, I remember very distinctly, was for 30 aircraft, of which 10 for the United States Navy Coast Guard Experimental Squadron at Floyd Bennett Field, 10 for the United States Army Air Corps, and 10 for the RAF. And when the RAF got the Dragonflies and began to fly with them, uh, something very strange happened. The British Ministry of Supply at that time came back and ordered another 200. When that news hit Washington, somebody said, well, you know, the British aren't, aren't they're not, not very dumb. If they've ordered 200 of this, there must be something to this helicopter, and they proceeded to order another 200 themselves. So the Sikorsky aircraft in the very early days was indebted and still today is thankful to someone in London who ordered 200 of these dragonflies off the bat. We delivered them to the British that uh, put them aboard a couple of tanker, a uh, couple of ships and sent them off to England. One of the earliest pilots on that, by the way, is another very, very wonderful friend, Eric Winkle Brown, who took delivery of the first R4, the first dragonflies, two of them, to arrive in the UK. Next slide. The Americans immediately sent these aircraft off to uh, various parts of the jungle. The first combat rescue by helicopter is documented in 1943, uh, correction, in 1944, in April of 44, when Lieutenant Carter Harmon flew four times deep into Burma to a small area where an uh, American medevac airplane had crashed. And uh, possibly all of you who are immersed in military history will recognize the name the Chindits. It was the Chindits that took a perimeter, established a perimeter, and held it against the Japanese for about three days while Carter Harmon flew in twice, four times, into that crash site to rescue these people, flying four times deep into Japanese territory and flying out with them. The, this event spurred a reaction in the United States Floyd, at Floyd Bennett Field, which was at that time the center of research for the helicopters, slide, a unique, a unique station in which we had about uh, 35 to 40 Americans uh, learning to fly. We had 18 or 20 RAF fleet air arm people, and we had about 10 or 12 civilians, all of them packed together in a very international goulash, learning to fly these very first helicopters. It was decided at that time, in a moment of inspiration, that Commander Erickson, United States Coast Guard, the first, the Navy's first rated helicopter pilot, rotary wing rating number one, decided that what the helicopter needed to make it a, a complete instrument was a rescue hoist. And this is the first public demonstration of the rescue hoist. The photograph is rather dear to me because it shows my commander, Frank Erickson, flying the machine, hanging below the machine, Cunningly disguised with a full head of hair is your speaker, oh. Sergei Sikorsky. <laughs> Next slide. As the war ended, the helicopters were then cut off, production ceased, but the concept of the helicopter had been born and had been fully, fully confirmed. Slide. 
the machine began to gain uh, supporters in the United States Navy and shortly thereafter in a number of navies around the world. And one of its first obvious uh, missions was plane guard duty among the flat tops, the aircraft carriers on duty. Slide. As the machines began to grow bigger and more powerful, they, they began to demonstrate ever more convincingly that unique role of the helicopter for the saving of human lives, the role that had so inspired Igor Sikorsky as a young 12- and 14-year-old boy, and it caused him never to forget that dream of the helicopter. Slide. Today, the machine is formally accepted, as, and I would say this, that prime ministers and presidents, slide, and the crown head of Europe all seem to accept the helicopter and to fly in it. Slide. We are indebted to England and we are indebted at Sikorsky Aircraft to a number of the great pioneers. People such as Jock Cameron, who actually started uh, the concept of the helicopter in the UK, and Jock was the gentleman that said that the Silly Penzance is a natural route for the helicopter. I believe to date right now it has been running for some 37, 38 years, and I believe that they have very, very recently uh, reached 3 million passengers carried since that operation started. Next slide. Another one of the great pioneers, a shy and retiring gentleman named Alan Edgar Bristow, <laughs> also did valuable, wonderful pioneering work. And in fact, right now, the Bristow helicopters are spread all around the world on a variety of industrial uses, and one of them primarily the offshore oil slide. We are deeply grateful and very proud of the fact that the next generation helicopter, the S-92, is coming to Great Britain to become a new uh, Coast Guard vehicle, and I hope that it will be here probably in the next three to five months after it finishes certain tests in the United States, and it will be Her Majesty's Coast Guard S-92 number one. Slide. Here, the smaller machines are beginning to get uh, also, a foothold in Canada, for instance, where the in Vancouver and Victoria and Seattle are now being serviced on a daily basis by helicopters, and believe it or not, the company is making money doing it. Slide. Its impact on the tactics and strategy in the military need not be discussed here because of the fact they have been profound, they have been very, very important, and they have resulted in a great many interesting developments. Slide. They are being used in conditions and in areas whenever, whether they are very difficult, extremely stressed, and are generating the requirements for right now a new generation of helicopters. Slide. It's interesting also to note that if you take a helicopter such as the Black Hawk, and you can arm it, or you can disarm it, carry troops, or you can uh, take the troops out and load it full of rockets. This helicopter, the Black Hawk, right now, with the weaponry that you see hanging there, has the equivalent salvo firepower of a cruiser of World War II. Slide. 
And yet, I know that were my father here today, he would claim that the single greatest source of satisfaction and pride to Igor Sikorsky is the life-saving record of the helicopters, literally from the beginning. And it is in this case, I would like to say, one very important fact, which is that we in the helicopter industry, certainly here at Sikorsky Aircraft, would be producing large, relatively useless pieces of hardware if it were not for the dedication, the skill, and the courage of the men and women that fly these helicopters. It is to them that we, Sikorsky Aircraft, owe a a debt of gratitude, an unending debt of gratitude for proving that Igor Sikorsky was right when he said that the helicopter will prove to be a unique instrument for the saving of human lives. Slide. In concluding this, the recollections of a pioneer, in concluding it, I would like to quote the exact words of Igor Sikorsky when he said that to have participated in the birth and the development of aviation was to participate in an endeavor that was a mixture of dreams, a mixture of expectations, and a mixture that produced some of the most interesting and romantic periods of human endeavor. One of the most important lessons that these early pioneers have taught us is the the importance of a word that we sometimes take for granted, and the word is freedom. You have to have this freedom in order to be able to dream. You have to have this freedom, slide, in order to be able to convert that dream into reality. You have to have the freedom not only to dream and not only to construct, but also the freedom if you need to, slide, to take a calculated risk to prove a point or to prove the progress of this thing. Because in Igor Sikorsky's word, it is only with this freedom to dream and the freedom to create and the freedom to try and attempt it. Slide. That man has been able to climb out of the cave and to reach for the stars. And I thank you, ladies and gentlemen.